you don't have a Bible, the text is on the back of the bulletin. Thank you, John. That was a wonderfully beautiful arrangement of this is my story, this is my song. That was a blessing. Now this week we move into our third section of sound doctrine and sound living, which is really the theme of Titus chapter 2. Just to review, Paul left Titus at Crete after um, what we presume is a missionary church planting endeavor. And the reason Paul left him there is given to us in chapter 1 verse 5 where he says, I left you to set in order the things that are lacking. As, as best as we can tell, the church at Crete was in a very formative state. New believers, it was not established. Um, and consequently, there weren't any elders. And so the first order of business is Paul wants Titus training up and equipping, identifying and establishing and appointing elders in the local church. And then we move on to the second thing to to set this young infant church in order is to teach doctrine. And chapter 2 is is bookended by this command. If you look in chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Then verse 15. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And in between those two commands for instruction... What we get are case by case, older men, older women, younger women, today, younger men, slaves, and then a section on doctrine that sort of undergirds this, the, uh, the gospel, how the gospel fuels into all of this. And again, if you remember, Paul is assuming the connection between teaching and living. That's the title, sound doctrine and sound living. There will be no sound living where there is no sound doctrine, and sound doctrine is not really sound doctrine if it doesn't produce sound living. And so that's sort of the context setting this up as Paul looks at the younger men. Another thing we've seen as we've gone case by case is how distinct Paul wants Christians at Crete to be in their living distinct from the culture. And so it's helpful to go back to chapter 1 and just remind ourselves of the culture that this young, these young churches find themselves in. The Cretan culture was not very good. And Paul says this in verse 10 of chapter 1, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, has said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. A culture that seems to promote leisure and gluttony and, from what we can tell, alcohol and pride and contentiousness. A culture that, in many respects, is not very different from our own. And so Paul's instruction for younger men really comes down to one command. And yet that one command, as we'll see, has a whole lot of impact and influence. And so we're going to look at this in in three points, training up sound-minded men. We're going to look at the what, we're going to look at the how, and we're going to look at the why. What is Titus to do? How is Titus to do it? Why is Titus to do it? Let's start by reading our text, Titus chapter 2, verses 6 to eight. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, showing yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, 
And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So first, what, what is Titus must train the younger men? Train the younger men. Notice that likewise, that likewise goes all the way back to verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then the assumption in verse 2 is teaching the older men. And then we saw in verse 4, older women likewise. And again, the likewise, teach them. And then down here, likewise, teach the younger men. So Paul has entrusted Titus with the responsibility of, an, of teaching and instructing the older men and the older women. Now, we pointed out last week that it was really the older women who were tasked with the edification and instruction of the younger women, um, probably due to Titus's youth and due to the fact that he simply would not be equipped to train the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be workers at home. It's nothing he's done. But Titus here is tasked with the older men, the older women, and now with the younger men, and likewise, he's to instruct them. And so it's this picture of training up. The word means to encourage, to exhort. It can mean to command. But in the whole context here, we'll see, it's a picture of discipleship and training. It's going to involve modeling. It's going to involve teaching. It's going to involve life-on-life instruction. And so it's a picture of training. The young men need to be trained. And unlike the previous categories we've looked at where there's sort of long lists, there's just one thing here. What must he train the young men to do? Well, the ESV says to be self-controlled, to be self-controlled. But what this really means, and you're blank here, is sound-minded, sound-minded. That's what the word means. Um, We think of sometimes self-control as primarily discipline, uh, primarily self-restraint, the ability to resist impulse, and that's partially what's in view here. But this is more a word that centers on thinking in the mind. The best definition I could find means to be able to think in a sound, sane manner, to be prudent, self-controlled, sensible, serious, keeping your head. So the concept is of an ordered, focused, sensible, prudent, mature mind and thinking. It's a command that's been attached previously to the other categories as well. If you look in verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. That's our same word. Um, The older women were to train the younger women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled. And so it's this notion of sound-minded, sound-minded. For the younger women, it's this notion of escaping the the values and the beliefs of the culture. And we, and we saw last week just how countercultural, but today's standards, Paul's instruction for the younger women is. And so they got to order and arrange their thinking and think seriously and maturely on these things and not just adopt the cultural values. Well, we're going to see the same thing applies to the young men. We're going to see the same thing applies to the young men. They need to be self-controlled and sound-minded. And, and as I'm studying this, I'm thinking, why, why just this one command for the young men? We've got, you know, Four things for the older men. We've got a whole list for the older and younger women. One thing. But the more I thought about it, the more it made sense. It seems like in, in Paul's day, and especially in our day, that one of the biggest challenges facing young men is this need to sort of grow up and become mature in their thinking. Now, the first question, okay, what is meant by younger men? And, and here we've got to sort of take an aside and, 
and discuss the fact that the Bible really only has two categories. There's children and there's adults. And you get that clearly from 1 Corinthians 13 where Paul says, when I was a child, I thought like a child and I acted like a child. But when I became an adult, I put away childish things. And, and Paul doesn't have any third category here. Now, among adults, we've seen there are older men and younger men, but you're either an adult or a child, biblically speaking. But something unique happened in our culture in the, in the 1800s. Um, prior to the late 1800s, there were only three categories of age, childhood, adulthood, and old age. I'm, I'm just reading from, a, from an article. It was only with the coming of the early labor movement and its progressive child labor laws, coupled with new compulsory schooling laws, that a new category called adolescence was invented. Coined by G. Stanley Hall, who's often considered the father of American psychology, adolescence identified the artificial zone between childhood and adulthood when young people ceased to be children but were no longer permitted by law to assume the normal responsibilities of adulthood, such as entering into a trade or finding gainful employment. Consequently, marriage and family had to be delayed as well, and so we invented the teenager, an unfortunate creature who had all the yearnings and capacities of an adult, but none of the freedoms and responsibilities. I'll, I'll just pause there. I think a lot of the angst that is seen in our culture in the teen years is that frustration of having the desire, and in many cases, the ability to live like an adult, to do adult things, and yet being held back culturally from being able to do that. I mean, young people can do incredibly complicated things with phones and, and computers, right? Um, but they can't learn to take a note from the phone. For, you, know, you know what I mean? There's sort of expectations are raised and lowered in all sorts of places. And so we get this, this adolescence culture. And so I think this is a timely message for young men. I, I would say young men starts really, here's a sort of a general principle biblically. The Bible sort of assumes that by the time you're old enough to have a child, you should stop being one. By the time you're old enough physically to have a child, you should stop being one. Children should not be having children. You know, David was in his early teens when he was fighting lions and, and uh, bear. Uh, Mary was almost certainly a young teenager. And, and I'm not trying to say that we should have our teens marrying or, or, or anything like that, but culturally we've shifted, we've pushed this off, this, this sound-mindedness, and, mat and maturing and maturity comes later and later. Um, read from one other article that I found. Speaking of the youth culture and the delay of adult responsibilities, there are only two major differences I can see between Peter Pan and most kidults. The first, is that, the first is that Peter Pan looks as young as he acts, and the second is that Peter Pan can fly. However, <laughs> however, once those differences are out of the way, I can easily see most adult essence crowing gleefully with Peter Pan, I want to always be a little boy and have fun. To put it bluntly, nearly 20% of Americans are Peter Pans that shave. The sad truth... The sad truth is that American adolescents are preoccupied with fun and consequently grow into adults who, you guessed it, are still preoccupied with fun. So getting back to this, what is the one thing Paul wants Titus focused on training up the younger men to do? He wants them to become self-controlled, sound-minded. He wants them to be able to think in an orderly, prudent, self-controlled, mature way. 
He wants them to be entering into adulthood. And I think this is very timely for our day as well. The average age for a first marriage is slowly creeping closer and closer to 30. Last I checked, there's about 28. Children being pushed off further and further as adult responsibilities are pushed off, pushed off. Um, I read another article that said the mean or average age that the video game industry targets now, the average age, is 28. 28. It was thought that previous generations who played those games would grow out of it. The, the proof is that is not the case. And so in, our, in, our, in the world, and then consequently creeping into the church, there is this sort of delay of, a, of adulthood, this notion of so, sort of sowing your wild oats, of having your sort of fun years before buckling down to the boredom and monotony of starting a family, getting married, getting a real job. Um, and so there's this whole age group of, of young men who need this encouragement to become sound-minded, to mature, to think soundly, to think biblically, to think with maturity, self-control, self-controlled. And, and, and the reason Paul is targeting the thinking, the mind, is because everything flows out of that. We, we've seen this before. Everything flows out of the thinking. If you're thinking maturely, if you're thinking with biblically reasoned and biblically informed thoughts, it's going to affect the way you live. The battle that we're engaged in is, is a battle over the thoughts of men. We, we've looked at this before, but 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5, Paul defines spiritual warfare. And I've, I've read blogs and seen books where spiritual warfare is, is touted as all sorts of things, um, whether it's marching around your city, claiming it for Jesus, which I'm not saying is a bad thing, it's just not spiritual warfare, not as Paul defines it. In 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5, Paul tells us what the warfare we're engaged in is. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of divine power to destroy, and here it comes, strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive. Did you catch that? It's about strongholds. It's about arguments. It's about opinions. It's about knowledge. It's about thoughts. Spiritual warfare is about the minds, the thoughts, the thinking, the beliefs of people. It was that way in Genesis 3 when Satan, beginning spiritual warfare, said, did God really say? And it's about that when we evangelize and we call people to change what they think and believe about their sin and about Christ and about the gospel. And as Christians grow, spiritual warfare is still about what people will believe and if you've been taught by the culture and you believe that your early 20s are a time for fun and, and excitement mainly, then you're going to live a certain way. You're just, you just are. You're going to live a certain way. And if you're taught biblically that no, um, that is not what God made us for, it's not for leisure and not fundamentally for fun, although there is great joy in following the Lord in holiness, then you're going to live a different way. And so this self-controlledness, this sound-mindedness Paul then attaches to, he wants it in all things. Now, in most of your Bibles, all things begins verse 7. And so you might think he wants Titus to show himself in all things to be a model of, of good works. But that's not the way it reads in Greek. It's not the way the majority of commentators take it. it he, what it really is saying is, I, I want you to train. I want you to encourage. I want you to instruct. I want you to disciple by the way, which indicates this isn't going to be easy. This isn't going to be a one-sermon fix. This isn't going to be a magic bullet. This is going to take time. 
This is going to take dedication. This is going to take repetition. But he wants him to train the young men to be self-controlled in all things, which, which is universal holistic sound-mindedness, not just in one or two areas, but in every area. And so you start thinking about that, and this starts to become a much bigger command. Al Mohler, in one of his recent blogs, listed 14 or 15 different areas that he thinks men need to mature in, and I just want to highlight a couple of them. Think of that sound-mindedness, that biblically-informed maturity in thinking as regards to spiritual maturity, Sufficient to lead a wife and children. This is what young men need to be growing into. Personal maturity, sufficient to be a responsible husband and father. Economic maturity, sufficient to hold an adult job and handle money. Physical maturity, sufficient to protect and work. Moral maturity, sufficient to lead as an example of righteousness. Ethical maturity, sufficient to make responsible decisions. Worldview maturity, sufficient to understand what is really important. Relational maturity, sufficient to understand and respect others. Social maturity, sufficient to make a contribution to society. Verbal maturity, sufficient to communicate and articulate as a man. Character maturity, sufficient to demonstrate courage under fire. And biblical maturity, sufficient to lead at home and at some level in the church. I think that sound-mindedness or self-discipline in all areas encompasses those types of things. And this is, this is the one thing young, younger men hear. And, and young men, it starts, I'd say, um, we're, we're creating men. People are moving into manhood, I think, probably in their high school years. And certainly, I hope, by the time they come out of high school. And this goes all the way up to older men, wherever that line gets drawn. Now, I had somebody try to corner me last week, wanting to know what side of the line they were on. And so I'm not going to give you a number, but, but this is an exhortation. This is the number one need for... I'd say starting at high schoolers all the way up to wherever you become an older man is this sort of holistic, universal, sound-mindedness, this universal prudence, self-control, seriousness. It's it's putting away childish things. It's putting away um, frivolities and, and looking at life as though there is a war on, as if there really is eternity at stake, as if there is the Lord's work to be done, as if things matter, as if the Lord truly wants us to glorify him in everything we do, whether we eat or drink, as if we're not freed men, but we are bound to Christ, as if we're not free agents whose life is to just serve ourselves and our own pleasure, but as if we're under orders and instruction from a loving God. And and that's what we need to grow up into. You know, the expression, boys will be boys, you know, it's fitting, and you can smile at it when you're talking with eight-year-olds. It starts to get a little bit more unnerving when you're talking with 18-year-olds, and it's downright creepy and inappropriate when you're talking with 28-year-olds. And yet our culture is just pushing further and further that way. And so Paul, there's one thing, guys, one thing that Paul And God, speaking through Paul, wants the younger men to be focused on. It's this universal focus and seriousness and sound-minded, mature, self-controlled approach to things. And this this command dominates the entire epistle. It's, It's given, as we saw, to the older men, to the younger women, and therefore, presumably, the older women. It's required of elders. In 2 Timothy 1, 7, Paul speaks of it generally for believers. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love. And here it is, self-control. 
It's one of the fruit of the Spirit, self-control. This is something all believers should be growing in. But, but Paul, exercising the wisdom of God, knows that this is, he doesn't want to distract the men with 15 things they need to be doing. He knows that we'll work better with just one thing. And here's this one thing. And yet, because it's in all things, he wants it. It's universal in scope. Okay, so that's, that's the mark. That's, that's the task. That's the priority. Um, is, is godly younger men who aren't living like boys, like Peter Pans who shave, but as men of God who are growing into that. Okay, how then are we to do this? That's the target on the wall. That's what we're aiming at. We've already had a hint through exhortation, through instruction, but the other piece of the puzzle that's equally important is by being a model, by being a model. Paul tells Titus, and presumably because Titus is a younger man, that he is to show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, an example, a pattern, be another word you could put in here. And, and so Paul is having Titus teach these men, but the teaching is not apart from modeling. And this helps make sense of why when you go to the qualifications for elders in all the lists, it always starts with character. It always starts with the marriage and the family and the, and the holiness because Jesus and Paul have no room for teachers who don't live holy lives, who don't live what they teach. Jesus' strongest rebukes were directed towards those would-be teachers of Israel, the Pharisees who said one thing and did another. And so alongside of this exhortation and teaching, there must be a modeling. There must be a modeling. Now, as I'm thinking through this, you think, okay, this is Paul's instruction for Titus, but who today does this apply to? Well, I think first and foremost, church leaders, um, men like myself, younger men who are in a position of leadership, need, need crucially to be modeling. But I, I think it also extends to the body. And I remember Crete had no mature believers. Crete did not have the foundation that Ephesus had. Um, now, in Ephesus, Paul instructs um, young Timothy to model as well. But he also, in, in 2 Timothy 2, 2, wants him to have other men modeling and training. In fact, the verse we got our tough men class from, 2 Timothy 2, 2, says this very thing. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will also be able to teach others. So not only does Paul want Timothy as an example and a model, but he wants Timothy setting up a program and a course where this is going to keep going long after he's dead where faithful men are entrusting what they've learned to other men who will grow up and become faithful men who will entrust it to other men who will grow up and on and on and on. And so this exhortation, while directly applying to Titus and therefore by implication to any church leader, I think also really applies to all men. As you model men, as you grow in modeling this, as you grow in your maturity, as you grow in your godliness, you will be modeling. You can't help it. People are going to look to you and they're going to learn from you. The only question is, what will they learn? When someone knows that you've been walking with the Lord for 10, 15, 20 years, they're going to be looking at your life. You are going to be an advertisement of what maturity looks like. The only question will be, what type of advertisement are you? Are you a model of good works? Or are you a model of something else? Are you a model of sound-mindedness? Or are you a model of something else? So Paul wants Titus here to be that model, to be that example and he wants it of good works, which is another major emphasis in this book. Another major emphasis in this book. If you go back to chapter 1, 
Paul links his apostleship, his very call as an apostle, to good works. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. His concern about the false teachers, if you look down at the end of chapter 1, is that they are unfit for any good work, verse 16. And at the end of this chapter, in verse 14, we read that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. A little further in chapter 3, verse 8, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And then down to verse 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Now here's the important thing to keep in mind when you look at this and this modeling. Um, and we've talked about this before, but I don't think it can be stressed too often. There's, there's two ways we think about Christianity. There's two ways people think about religion. One is you do things, do say good works, that make you acceptable to God. You do certain rites, you do certain rituals. Next week we'll ask, okay, must I be baptized to be acceptable to God? And that's, that's not Christianity. That's not what the Bible teaches. That is what the vast majority of other religions in the world teach. You do certain things. You perform certain things. You experience certain things, and you become acceptable to God. And so I just want to jump ahead in chapter 2 to make this abundantly clear that that is not the case. Paul separates the root from the fruit. The gospel requires of us faith. The gospel requires of us turning to Christ. What the gospel produces is good works. So the gospel calls a call to repentance and faith. The gospel calls a call to trusting Jesus Christ. The gospel produces good works. And so before we dive into this modeling of good works, I don't want anyone to be confused here. So just look a little bit further down in chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodlessness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify him for himself, a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So Christ gave himself for us to redeem us, to have us be forgiven. Jesus' death on the cross occurred so that we could be forgiven and we could be um, purified for himself, therefore becoming, and here's the key, a people zealous for good works. Jesus died so that we could be forgiven and we could be renewed and therefore be transformed, become, result a people zealous for good works. So don't miss that. Please don't walk away thinking, okay, if I can just become a sound-minded young man, if I can just model good works, then I'll be acceptable. You got it all wrong. You need to know Jesus Christ by faith. You need to be trusting in him personally. You need to be transformed by the gospel. And then, and only then, in the power of the Holy Spirit, you can begin to do this as God would have you do it. So Paul wants Titus, and therefore he wants us to be models of good works, which again is that sort of holistic, uniform character, and also in his teaching. And I think this is really significant. If, if you would um, turn in your Bible to the book of Acts, chapter 20, 
And this is really important for understanding and why, why it's really important in churches for the pastors and the leaders and the teachers to know and to be known by their people. Um, I've, I've spent some time in bigger churches, in mega churches, and when you start getting to a certain size, it becomes very, very difficult to actually get to know your leaders. And I think that's a, a great tragedy and a great cost to the church because Paul modeled and he wants Titus to model a relational aspect of ministry that involves both teaching and life on life. Now look in Acts chapter 20, verse 31. Paul describing his ministry at Ephesus to the Ephesian leaders. Therefore, be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So what was Paul doing night and day? He was encouraging. Same word. He was admonishing. He was instructing. Night and day, everyone with tears. House by house. Person by person. Paul didn't just have a pulpit ministry where he sort of taught corporately. But he was in their homes. They're in his home. There's life on life. Consequently, in Philippians 4.9, he could say to the Philippian church, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice these things. Notice that last piece of that puzzle. Yeah, the Philippians heard it because Paul spoke it, and they received it. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things. See, the picture's not complete without, without a model. And it's too easy, and it's too safe to just speak and never let people see your lives. You should be looking at me and your leaders, and, and you should be prayerfully and... and lovingly holding me to what I say. If you hear me say something from this pulpit and do something else, you should lovingly call me on that. God doesn't want hypocrites teaching his people. He doesn't. And, and it's too easy to hide if people don't have access to your life. So it's great to be in a smaller church like this where we can know and be known because modeling and teaching, modeling and good works is so important. It's how Paul did his ministry. It's how he wants Titus doing his ministry. The most, and if you think about this, the most significant change in your life may have been at a, at a sermon, but I'm guessing it was probably more that life-on-life, relational, conversational ministry, someone saying a word to you in a fit time, in a fit way, used by the Holy Spirit to, to change you. So there is an emphasis on teaching. There's no doubt. Paul wants Titus to be about teaching. We've seen that at the beginning of the chapter. We've seen that at the end of the chapter. We see that here. And yet, even in teaching, he's to be modeling. Even in his teaching, he's to be an example. What we see he's an example of is is three things. First, integrity. Integrity. And this is that notion of of non-hypocrisy, that what he's saying is what he's doing. Um, I I know I've given this example before, but 10 years on, I still find it very compelling, and so I hope you'll bear with me. But... I remember at a conference at Grace Community Church, Eric Alexander speaking in his thick Scottish brogue, and he was commenting on Ezra 7.10. If you remember, Ezra was the, the priest who began to teach the Israelites upon their return from the Babylonian captivity. And in Ezra 7.10, we learn how Ezra prepared for that. He set his heart to study the law of God, to do it, 
to teach statutes and rules in Israel. Notice that progression. He studied God's word. He did God's word. And then he taught God's word. And so Eric Alexander, speaking to a whole room full of thousands of pastors, leans over the pulpit. And in his thick Scottish accent, he said, The ad man tells you that such and such a soda tastes so good. But what the people really want to know is when he gets home, does he drink his own soda? Right? And so he looks and says, what your people want to know, pastor, is do you drink your own soda? That's 10 years on. It's still convicting. It's still convicting. We've got to model integrity. There, there can't be a disjunct between what's being taught and what's being modeled. You know, you know this. Any parents in the room know that your kids are going to learn a lot more from what you do than what you say. They're going to learn a lot more of what you do than what you say. Modeling integrity in his teaching. Next, modeling dignity. Modeling dignity. Dignified teaching. That's interesting. The word means demanding respect. Demanding respect. And again, in the culture that is driven by entertainment, that is driven by uh, the flash of lights and the, and the entertainment culture, there is a drift in some churches to move towards more of an entertainment culture in the preaching. Sermons get shorter, more and more video clips get thrown in. I'm sure you've all heard preachers who seem to want to be more of a stand-up comedian than a serious dispenser of truth. And it not only creeps into the church, but it can creep into youth culture. And you see some, some teachers there that, again... Dignity doesn't really come to mind. Um, fear factor church. These things are done. Clown church, they're done. You can find them. You absolutely can. But Paul wants Titus in his teaching of the younger men to model integrity and to model dignity. Dignified teaching with integrity. And thirdly, he wants Titus to teach sound and irreproachable words. And that word for sound, same word back in verse 1. Referring now to the content. Back in chapter 2, verse 1, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine or healthy doctrine. And after focusing on the integrity of, of Titus's teaching and the dignity with which he does it, now he focuses on the content. Sound, healthy teaching that cannot be refuted. And of course, now he has an eye the, the false teachers at Crete who are, who are by nature, he said, argumentative, insubordinate in verse 10 of chapter 1. They're insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Elders in verse 9 must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that they may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict. And so because there's an enemy out there, because there is um, adversaries, Titus is to give care to what he says and how he says it so he doesn't give an opportunity for someone to approach what he says. And again, this, this can become difficult when the pulpit becomes more and more about telling jokes than it is about speaking the truth of God's word. Now all this then brings us to our third and final point, why? Why is this so important? And I think it's really interesting that last week, the reason given for the women, you saw that. Why was it important for the women to teach the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be workers at home, good, pure? Well, because so that the word of God would not be reviled. Remember that from last week? So that the scripture would not be blasphemed, literally. Well, this week, it's a similar, similar motive, a little different. Why must it be done? To silence our opponents. 
to silence our opponents. Look at verse 8. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Why is it important that Titus conduct himself this way as a model of integrity? Why is it so important that he teaches the men, trains, and disciples the younger men to, to put away childish things and to be live sober-minded, serious, prudent, self-controlled, sound-minded lives? Well, again, it's because of the enemy. It's because of the watching world. And here, it's to, to put to shame those who would attack us. The us being Christians, not just Paul and, and Titus, but the church itself. And, and so Paul's argument here, a little different than last week's, is that the parts represent the whole. The parts represent the whole. The world is going to see a handful of Christians. They're going to see Titus and some of these younger men. And they're going to use that little sampling to uh, characterize all Christians. You know, and you think about that with us, that you might be the only Christian your unbelieving neighbor, your unbelieving coworker knows. What are they going to think about Christianity from that? The danger here is that if, if Titus isn't conducting himself in a dignified way with integrity and using sound words to train the younger men to live self-controlled, sound-minded lives, the danger is our adversaries will have something to say. That's, that's the logic here. You don't want to give them ammunition against us. Now notice, it's not that by doing so they won't you know, accuse us of things. The, the, the point is that when they accuse us of things, they won't really have any substance. They'll be ashamed. The, the attacks will come. The slander will come. The challenges will come. The question is, do they stick? Are they valid? Our culture loves nothing more than to put on the front pages of, of the newspaper the fallen Christian leader or Westboro Baptist Church picketing whatever it is they're picketing this week. And they love to do that. And they love to paint Christianity as a whole with that. But Paul expects they would. He anticipates this. And so because of that, the way to fight back against that isn't to mount campaigns or necessarily to challenge the editor at you know, CSNBC. You feel free to do that. But the way to do that, the way to combat that is to overcome evil with good. That's the logic here. The way to fight back against a culture, I mean, sometimes I, I'm surprised at Christians who act surprised that the media is against us. I, you've read the Bible, right? There's a God of this world who is at war with the God of the world. He's got plans, he's got schemes, right? And he, he has the rulers and powers of this world. We should not be surprised that the world is against us. The world is looking for weak spots. That the world is looking for chinks in our armor. The world is exposing and, and, and publicly broadcasting the failure of Christians. That should not surprise us. And it should not surprise us that the world does that to us in a way that it doesn't do to other religions, that it gives passes to other religions. Yes, there is a conspiracy going on. It, it, it shouldn't surprise you. I'm not saying it should please you, but it shouldn't surprise you. And the way to fight back is with holiness. The power of holy war is holiness. You overcome evil with good. Romans 12, 21, that's a typo. Romans 12, 21 says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's Paul's logic here. Titus, if you will conduct yourself as a model of good works, if you will conduct yourself and your teaching with integrity and dignity and sound words, Titus, if you can train and disciple the younger men to stop living like kidults and to become men of God, 
sound-minded and sober and sensible in all areas, if you can do that, then our adversary, he's still going to attack us, and he's still going to slander us, but they will be put to shame having nothing to say against us that is evil. That, that's the strategy against this. The strategy is holiness. The strategy is good works. The strategy is becoming people of God who look more and more like Christ. That's the strategy, overcoming evil with good. Um, and as we close, I just want to point you to the ultimate model of that. We've seen Paul modeling this. We've seen Paul call Titus to model it. We've seen the scriptures by insinuation call us to model it. But the ultimate model of this was Jesus Christ himself. If you remember his mock trial in Mark 14, 55 to 56, we read, The chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Now, there's the ultimate example of a blameless life. Yet the attacks will still come. They came at Jesus, but they had nothing to say. The opponents were put to shame. Or flip, flip to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll close here. Flip to 1 Peter chapter 2. As Paul gives similar instruction to the Christians, as Peter, sorry, gives similar instruction to the church. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verses 11 and through 12, not verses 11 through 121. There's the one that was needed over in Romans 12, but okay. Um, there's an editing error. 1 Peter 2, 11 to 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, which is another way of saying, be zealous for good works. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil against you, Speak against you as evildoers. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The, the, the accusations are going to come, but if you keep your conduct honorable, if you abstain from the desires of the flesh and the passions, when they try to speak evil of you, they're really going to glorify God because they'll have nothing to say. And you jump a little further into chapter 2, and we again see Jesus as the example. And I want to close with looking at Jesus as the example. I want to call the uh, worship team up here while we do that. Now look at this. Here's that word for example. Verse 21. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. So that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When they falsely accused him, when they slandered him, he wasn't surprised. He bore it. Again, the, the, the charge is not to fight back, and to mount lawsuits, the charge is to live holy lives. Jesus didn't respond. He endured it, even though it was slander and false accusation. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He left us an example of living a holy, godly life that cannot be condemned. And that, and that is the why. So in, in summary, what must be done? The younger men must be trained, discipled, encouraged 
to be circumspect, sound in mind, self-controlled, prudent. How is that done? It's done through a combination of teaching and modeling. And really, that's discipleship right there. It's done through discipleship. Teaching's a vital part of it, but living a godly life's a vital part of it. What's at stake? Why? So that our opponents will have nothing evil to say about us, so that they will not be able to legitimately slander the name of Christ by the conduct of Christians. It's a pretty, it's a pretty good reason. It's a pretty high motive. Again, each one of us doesn't live to himself or die to himself. Your own personal holiness and sanctification is not a private matter. Because we may, through our own sin, give the enemy cause to slander and attack the name of Christ by which we are called. And so then it is with that that we now will close in singing that Christ would make us servants, make us slaves to him, make us give up our rights to serve the living God. Let's stand and we will sing.